So take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're moving along in Philippians. Uh, if you've been watching us online, then you're caught up. If you've missed online, then you might be a little behind. But those all, all those messages are still there. You can go back and look at them and get caught up there. Philippians chapter 1. Today's message title is Live Worthy, but I haven't decided um, if what next Sunday's title is going to be, or the next, or the next, or the next, except maybe I have. Uh, they may all be live worthy. Uh, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, live worthy is the first, well, you'll see in a minute, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. It's exciting stuff, I love Philippians. It, 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 this, we're going to be on this a while, let me put it that way. Not this passage, but all the way through chapter 2, verse 18, we're going to be talking about this. Live worthy, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 is our focus today. Just a brief passage, but it is, it is thick, it is heavy, it is a major passage. If, if you thought to live in, as Christ, to die as gain was heavy, well, Paul is not going to let you rest. Uh, he's going to get after you again with this passage and, and make sure he drives home that point that living is Christ, dying is gain, is how we live worthy. It's, it's what we do, and it's what we're prepared for. Shakespeare wrote Henry VIII, I'm sorry, Henry V, in his play Henry V, he presents Henry V as uh, a drunkard. Uh, ne'er-do-well, carousing while his daddy was king. Prince Henry just did what he wanted to. But when his daddy dies, when the crown is about to come, Prince Henry realizes what he has been doing, what he has lived his life as. And as he's crowned king, he makes a vow to live a worthy life life, to live up to the crown, to live up to the father that went before him. And Shakespeare writes it this way. He says, speaking, it's Henry talking, the tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea, where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. Henry had realized where he had been and, and knew that that life does not comport to being the king of England. So he, he makes this commitment. He determines now to live worthy. Paul is going to do the same thing, com uh, command us actually, here in verses 27 through 30. Read that with me. Please, uh, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your own copy of God's Word with you. Paul writes, just one thing. Well, we could stop there, right? We know with Paul it ain't just one thing. But right now, one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent... I will hear about you, that you're, you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So as I said in this passage, Paul commands us to do the same thing that Henry V determined to do when he gained his crown. The, the difference is, our living worthy, and I, if I have any grammar teachers listening, I know it's live worthily. Right, it's an adverb on the verb, but the way the scripture says it. So, live your life worthy of the gospel. So I'm going to go with that. It works fine in Greek. 
we live worthy for greater ends than Henry V did. Henry V wanted to live up to his daddy's name. He wanted to lead England well. We, in similar terms, want to live up to our father's name, and we want to lead in the kingdom well. We want to serve in the kingdom well. Paul tells us, live worthy. As a matter of fact, this is the first imperative verb in Philippians. Paul has not given a command yet to this point, and this is the first one that he gives. He's going to have a few more through chapter 2, verse 18. Because this one command, and that's why I said I'm not sure what next week's title is going to be in the next week and the next week, because this one command in verse 27 actually informs everything else he says all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. Every time he gives another command, every time he gives another explanation, every time he, he expounds a point through chapter 2, verse 18, it is in order to get the people, us, them, to understand, hey, remember I told you to live worthy. And these are all the different ways that you do that. Live worthy. That, that word, live worthy, it, it, it's an interesting verb. I'm not sure how your translation has it. Mine has, as citizens of heaven, live your life. Worthy is its own word. As citizens of heaven, live your life, that's one verb. We've got six words to translate one word in Greek. Because there's no way to explain that word in Greek in English in one word, because it really means act on your true citizenship. And he's intentionally playing off of their Roman citizenship. He, the, the, the word he uses is, oh, I, I meant to write it down, and I don't think I did, looking through my notes here, uh, polituomai. Now, the omai, oh that's, that's not omai. Oh it's not that kind of omai. Oh it's just the way they ended their verbs. But you hear polite. What would we end that with? That's right, politic. Polis meant city. This word, this verb has in it, it is a verb about living your citizenship. But Paul is turning this word around on them. He's intentionally, intentionally playing off of their Roman citizenship. If you remember back when we started Philippians, we talked about uh, how... Philippi is named for Philip of, of Macedon, uh, the, the, the father of Alexander the Great. But when it became a colony of Rome, they, they, see, they um, settled so many soldiers there, and they wanted it to be a, 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 uh, a place that was loyal to Rome. So they made it a Roman colony, which granted everybody their citizenship. Not everybody who lived in Rome was a Roman citizen. didn't work that way. If you remember the conversation that Paul had with the, uh, the jailer, uh, the centurion, it, Paul says, are you going to beat a, a, beat a citizen? And he says, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. And Paul says, I was born one, dude. Remember that conversation? It, you weren't just a citizen because. You either had to come from a particular place in the Roman uh, empire, or you had to purchase it or be granted that. So Paul, himself, a Roman citizen, right? He's not impressed by the Philippians. He is born one just like they were. Tells them, your citizenship on earth, your source of pride as a Philippian, your, your source of freedom as a Roman citizen, that is not what is important. It is your citizenship in heaven. Act on that citizenship. To live worthy, as Paul uses the verb, is to act as a citizen of heaven before you act as a citizen of anything else. His point here is clear that human, civil, political citizenship, whatever we label ourselves as, is nowhere near as important as the heavenly citizenship we gain through adoption, through adoption in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in his blood, through his blood. 
That is the citizenship that matters most. That is what Paul is trying to get across to them. So he's, he's using where they are. I mean, he's, he, Paul was a master of this. He is contextualizing the gospel. The message is the same, but depending on who he's talking to and when, he, he uses their circumstances, uses their situation in order to explain the faith to them what, and to disciple them. And then this, this word, worthy, so here's the title, right? Live worthy. This, this word worthy makes clear that there is a standard for Christian living. There is a worthy manner that believers are to live. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. Well, now he spends the next chapter or so explaining what that is. And really, he's going to be coming back to this all throughout Philippians. He's going to hit on a lot of these points over and over and over as we work through it. But that's our theme for the next number of weeks. Live worthy as citizens of heaven match this standard for Christian living. That's it. So, what are the ways that we are to live worthy just in these three verses? There are four uh, verbs that he uses. Some of them are participles. I'm using them as imperatives, like commands again. He is going to describe it. So, he is going to say things like, in verse 1, live your life, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. I said verse 1, I meant verse 27. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy, standing firm. So that's our first one. Stand firm in one spirit. As you live your life worthy, standing firm in one spirit. So clearly, right, that's, that's okay, got it. That's my first, my first clue here to what I'm supposed to do. Now, what does he mean, though, by one spirit? Now, how many of you in your Bibles, spirit is capitalized? Right there, standing firm in one spirit. Anybody? Any translations capitalize it? Interesting. Mine do, doesn't either. Now, I believe it should be capitalized. I believe, not just because I made it up, but because of folks I was reading, I believe this is the spirit. Now, it could be potentially one common mind stand firm standing firm in one common mind like you know we would come i've got spirit yes i do i've got spirit how about you we're not talking about the holy spirit there we're talking about we're in this thing together we are we are of one mind we are of one voice we are coming together you know that's the sort of thing that most translators say the problem is greek never uses that phrase like that we're familiar with it. I, I mean, if we said, oh, yeah, man, we're, we're all, we're of one spirit in this thing. Well, you know exactly what I mean. We're all together on it. We're, we're united in it. Common mind, common ground, common goal, common purpose, whatever. Greek did not have that phrase. In one spirit? No, they would have never said that. They would have said in one mind. They would have said in something else, but not that. Paul never uses in one spirit, in any other way in any of his other letters. I think he only used it two other times, but it was always clearly talking about the Holy Spirit. So here, go ahead, if, if, you're, if you're one of the Bible writers, I, I'm, I'm giving you permission to go ahead and take your, your pen and, and do a capital S over that lowercase s. So what he's saying here is, in one, the Holy Spirit Stand firm. Well, that doesn't really make it any clearer, does it? As a matter of fact, that kind of muddies the water. Michael, I, get, I got it if we're standing in one common mind, or if we're all on common ground, but how do we all stand in one, the Holy Spirit? If you remember back when we were going through Ephesians on Wednesday nights, those of you who, who come to our Wednesday night Bible study, or used to, we talked a lot about in Christ. You remember how many times Paul says in Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he says a few times, in the Spirit. And we talked about what that meant. It didn't mean that we were somehow uh, 
metaphysically, ethereally, whatever, inside of Jesus somehow. And it doesn't mean that with uh, the Holy Spirit either. We are not in the Holy Spirit. That would be something along the lines of panentheism or pantheism, one of those where, where God's everything and we're just kind of, or maybe we're the consciousness of God. There are folks that believe that. We're just, we're just his thoughts. We're not really, we don't really exist. Those are all not real possibilities, and that's not at all what Paul meant here. When he says be in one spirit or in one, as I'm saying, the Holy Spirit, he is talking about, if you remember our Wednesday nights, in the sphere of the Spirit's influence. And if you want to see how he talks about that in Christ, or with Christ, it's Ephesians 2, 8, uh, rather, Ephesians 2, 18, and chapter 4, verse 4. He uses it in those ways there. But that's what he's talking about. Be in one spirit. Be within the sphere. And that's the, the idea of in one when it's used uh, in this way. In one sphere of of the holy spirit's influence be within his reach so to speak not that paul believed the holy spirit's reach was in any way shortened but be used by him be together in that realm in that place so there is this idea of common ground here but it is the ground that the holy spirit is standing on be in him, be working through him, be allowing him to work through you. But notice, notice, he says, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm. You are standing firm is not a passive verb. It's not happening to me. Like someone is standing you firm. We're, we're not... Uh, tchotchkes or trinkets standing on a, a, a bookshelf that when we get tired of them over here in this section of the house, we take it and we stand it firm somewhere else. That's not us. He is saying this as a declarative statement. You, when I hear about you, make sure that I hear that you are standing firm. You are actively doing it. You are purposefully putting yourself, all y'all, into the sphere of the Holy Spirit's influence. It is a necessary uh, effort on our part to place ourselves in that sphere. Hear the responsibility of the individual believer and the community of believers to stay, to stand firm in the Holy Spirit's influence. So this is, uh, so we see Paul is clear by this brief little phrase, this participial phrase. It's, it, it, it's, not, a, it's not a command, it's, it's an ing verb, right? Standing firm. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not just a communal unity. It's not just us saying, oh yes, we all agree on this. But it is what is needed to stand firm against persecution to contend as one person, and to live worthy. Paul makes clear from the outset, anything else I tell you past this is dependent on the inner working and the outward, in, uh, outward sphere of influence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual believer and in the community of believers. If we try to do it without the Holy Spirit, it is not going to work. Second point he, point he makes, if, if I comes to you and I see you or if I just hear about you, the things that I will know is one, that you are standing firm, and two, that you are contending together for the faith of the gospel. Or, as I said, I put it in the form of a command on the next slide, contend in one accord. Contend in one accord. Now, the word contend itself, a lot of Greek lessons today, but you'll hear why when I, when I read them to you. The word contend in Greek is the word athleo. And so we hear athlete, athletic, contend. That's the idea of contend, to play the sport. Get out there and hit them, boys, you know, whatever, whatever your sport is. That's what it said, contend, engage in an athletic contest. Athleo, contend. But, 
Paul uses a compound word here. He puts a prefix on athleo, and that prefix he uses is S-Y-N, sin. Not like sin bad, but no, <laughs> not like sin bad either. Um, that, was, that was weird. Um, not like things that are bad, like sins, but synthesis, right? Things that come together that and my, my, my chemical guys in here can explain it much better, but things that come together, combine to do something better. You synthesize things, and, and it, it makes something better than what was. At least that's the hope. So when we synathleo, combine, contend, the verb he's talking about is engage side by side, help one another. My mind, when I'm thinking of sports, naturally goes to football. I'm sorry for all you baseball and basketball lovers, but football's better. Um, so when I think of engaging side by side, I immediately think of particularly the offensive line. Now the defensive line, their job is to get through the offensive line, get to the ball. At the very least, disrupt the line so that the defensive backs can get through the line. But they don't work quite as well or as much in a unit as the offensive line does. Because that offensive line is a wall. At least that's the purpose. That's why we have 310, 320, 350 pound offensive linemen that stand 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, something like that. They want the biggest boys they can find there in the middle because they want a wall. And you only get that wall by standing those offensive linemen together. Coaching Little League football for a few years like I did. One of the hardest things to get those six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds to do was to line up right on the offensive line. They'd want to get up on that offensive line and have one guy here, another guy over here. And let's see, this is a problem. No, you get your feet shoulder width apart, and the guy next to you should have his foot next touching your foot. Because you want to be a wall. Contend side by side. Now, if we go back years ago in football, it's illegal, illegal now. You can't do it. But on a kickoff or a punt return, what did the old football teams do? Do I have any football fans in here that remember the, the play, the formation that they would use to run back a football? I think I hear it. Home run. Yes, Lacey, that is correct. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's not a home run. That's in baseball. Sport's good, guys. Um, the wedge. I, I, I knew I heard it back there somewhere. Was that Ken? All right. I knew I heard it. The wedge. They would literally, some of them would lock arms, right? The, 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 they kick off the ball. You'd have 10 guys with arms locked running down the field, and the guy behind them running with the ball. Now, that's illegal. It broke arms. It was, it was very unsafe. They don't let them do that anymore. But again, you see the image, right? Sin athleto. Contend side by side. And that's a little different. On the offensive line, you're, you're on offense, right? But you're really defending the ball behind you. You're, you're keeping those people. You're not, the, the line isn't on the offensive. They're a, they're a wall around the castle. But on that wedge play, they were on the offensive. You run down that field as hard as you can, and you run over anybody you come in contact with. There's our image for what Paul is doing. No, he didn't know about football, but that's what we see today. Contending together for the faith of the gospel. Contending for the faith is a team sport. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. It was never intended to be that. Christianity isn't golf, where you're the only one out there playing, and that doesn't matter because you're trying to beat the course more than you're trying to beat the person next to you. It, it, it's, it's not solitaire. It's not, it's not those things that you can do by yourself and, okay, we're good. No, no. The Christian life is a team sport. Contending for the faith 
is a team sport. Now, we have a personal responsibility. Even on that offensive line, it's not all just stand there and keep them from hitting. Oh, you get stunts, you get all the slide play, you get the, the tackle to move out and go around and run in front. You, you have all these ways to use that offensive line. They each have a separate responsibility personally for whatever that play may call for in that situation. But they are all working for the same goal and the same purpose. And if any one of them doesn't do their job, it doesn't work. I mean, we, we as, as LSU fans, not Auburn or University of Texas fans, I learned why I got this color bandana two weeks ago, by the way, to wipe my face with. As LSU fans, we got to see what it was for a team, most of the time, everybody doing their job the right way, the first time, too near perfection. Clearly, no, we didn't score 100 to 0 every game, so we didn't play with perfection. But as close as you can in foot, college football, just about it. Because every part was doing, or every person was doing their part. There's a personal responsibility, but we're never meant to go it alone. That's why we as Southern Baptists have the cooperative program, it's why we support the International Mission Board. That's why we support the North American Mission Board. That's why we come together to support church planting in areas that may be close to home, maybe places we'll never see. That's why we do all of these things as a convention of churches. We're stronger together. We contend together for the faith. And that is what Paul is saying. Guys, folks, ladies, men, people, line up. Aim for that goal and together reach it. Paul loves sports metaphors. He does it all the time in his letters. And that's why I love Paul. Remember, he said back in verse 25, I'm persuaded this, I know I'll remain and continue with all of you. And he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. Their progress and joy, the church's progress and and joy are directly related to their teaming up for the gospel. And what Paul also understands here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but what he understands here is they are teamed up with him as well, right? That's what he talks about in verses 12, the, the whole advance of the gospel uh, message that we talked about for two weeks in verses 12 through 26. They are on, on team with him. He's in Rome, they're in Philippi, and they're on the same team working together. Y'all, that's why when we were at home watching services on our computer screens or our phones, we were still a team contending for the faith. That's why it's un while it's uncomfortable, while it's abnormal, it does not change the church. It doesn't. We are still a team contending for the faith. Later on at the end of Philippians, he's going to tell Euodia and Syntyche to partner up have we heard the word partnership since we started philippians a couple of times and we're going to hear it some more he's going to tell them to partner up again team up again just like you did with me he knows on this team there's some conflicting personalities in this church in philippi euodia and syntyche being the maybe poster ladies for that in the church and he's going to say team up again y'all are together you have got to lock arms and run that wedge number three third point he makes verse 28 not being frightened in any way by your opponents don't be afraid again making it an imperative that's the next slide don't be afraid there will always be opposition to the gospel. That will never change. We can never vote it out. We can never love it out. We can never get away from it. The gospel is anathema. It is the extreme no. 
to a world that is lost and going to hell, and it will always be the case. And Paul, in, these, in this really half a, half a sentence here, half a phrase, Paul's giving the historical context of this letter. In just a few words, he tells us what's going on in Philippi right now. He's going to allude to it here in a little bit uh, in verse 30 as well, when he tells them they're suffering just like he is. He knows what they're going through. He knows what they are experiencing. And what they are experiencing, what they are experiencing is a government that is telling them that their loyalty to Lord Jesus was less important, was subservient to their loyalty to Lord Caesar. That's what they're being told in Philippi. They, they had ceremonies, they had all these things, and we've talked about before the trade guilds that they were a part of where you, you, didn't, you really didn't have to do much. I mean, you, you walked by a little, little altar about the size of the pulpit, and, and you, the only thing you probably had to do was just walk by, get a little pinch of incense. Caesar is Lord. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you didn't have to go and bow down to him. You didn't have to go to church on, on Saturday or Sunday or whatever and worship him and sing songs to him. Nothing like that. It was just Caesar is Lord. But is he? For a believer, is he? That is a real struggle. And they, here, here's, here's the beauty of Greek. The word Lord, kurios, is the same word they used for kurios Caesar as they used for kurios Jesus. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. Paul knew what he was talking about. They are telling you that who you are as a citizen of Philippi is more important than who you are as a citizen of heaven. And that is not the case, he's telling them. And he knows the persecution that they are suffering because of it. So he tells them, right, the previous phrase, contend as a team. Getting back to the, the football uh, analogy, the LSU thing, going to that Alabama game, going into that Alabama game, I, I don't know. I don't know if we can do it. And then, then every game after that, you're thinking, wow, we've got what it takes, but can we go all the way? And then the first playoff, sec, could, could we beat Clemson? The questioning there is wondering, will they work together as a team? The realization, the success became apparent because... They work together as a team. Church, if we work together as a team, if, if we contend for the faith as a team, we might still lose. <laughs> Michael, you ruined that. We might. Why? To die is gain. Right? Paul makes no guarantees of, of, of winning here. He doesn't say if you have the best team, then woohoo, it's, it, it's going to be free and easy the whole way. <laughs> Just the opposite. The best team will be hit the hardest. There's no guarantee. But without even the guarantee, he says, contend for the faith as a team against the persecution that will attempt to stop it. Because we may lose. I may lose. You and I may lose. We as a team may get slaughtered. We use that phrase figuratively in football, but it could very well, well be literal for the church. We literally get slaughtered. Do you know what doesn't lose? The gospel. It doesn't. That's the point he's making. That's the point he made. I don't care what happens to me. If I'm in prison, the gospel. If I die, the gospel. 
And it makes that statement, to die is gain, a lot more personal and a lot more immediate. He says it earlier in the passage, verse 21, from me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And you could kind of hear the Philippians, at least I could, going, that's right, Paul, that could happen to you. If you live, yeah, we know it's going to be for Jesus. And if you die, we, yeah, we know you're going to be with Jesus. And he, now he says, and don't be frightened to stand up against those that are persecuting you and want to kill you. Because remember I said, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Yeah, Paul say, what? I mean, it's fine for you, Paul. But don't ask me to die for my faith. Luckily for us, Paul didn't ask us to do that. He commanded it. Imperative verb. Live worthy. And one way that you'll do that is that you will not be afraid of those that can hurt the body but never touch the soul. If persecution means death, it doesn't matter. And he says this is a sign of destruction for them but of your salvation. This, this that he's talking about here, moving on in verse 28. This is the, the, the this is standing, contending, and not being afraid. If you do these three things then it's destruction for them, those who would persecute you. Those who have no eternal hope, they, they cannot intimidate those that do. I mean, it, it's why rich people lawyer up. And, 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 and poor people go, well, I was going to sue you, but now I can't. Yeah, you can't go against that. It, it's why you, you want 320-pound, 350-pound offensive lineman against a 210, 220-pound defensive lineman. He might be faster, but that doesn't matter. He's not going to get through. Everything's going to be over by the time he gets around that wall. Those are the things that he's talking about. It is that their destruction. Those that have no eternal hope can't intimidate those that do, and it's going to remind them of that fact. It will also remind them of the fact that they or their end is not Christ. Their end is destruction, annihilation, you just go to sleep and nothing happens after, what, what, what comes after we die? I don't know, we don't have anything for that or nothing good. Paul says, see, it reminds them of their destruction and it is to your, he says, this is a sign of your salvation. Remember when we started this, I, I, uh, this uh, started Philippians, we talked about his salvation, uh, his being also vindication as he stands before caesar he talks about salvation but it kind of goes both ways vindication i will be vindicated before caesar the gospel will be shown to be true well it could be that he's talking about that again the gospel will be shown to be true in your persecute persecution you will one up so to speak your persecutors because the gospel's true but it's not vindication necessarily in this life. Oh, Michael, there you go with that whole dying for Jesus thing again. I know, I know, but, you know, it's what Scripture says. It is vindication. It is salvation to stare a mocking death in the face and have no fear for your eternity. If you don't deny Christ, I'll kill you. Please don't throw me in the briar patch. Right? If you remember your Br'er Rabbit stories, that's it. You're going to kill me? Really? That's your solution? That's how you think you're going to mess me up on this? That's my greatest joy to go and be with Jesus, Paul would say. That should be your greatest joy, church, Paul would say. To live is Christ. To die is gain. So... Do what you will. And then lastly, maybe his hardest statement to stomach, at least to process in verses 29 through 30, take suffering as a gift. No, you, they didn't keep the receipt. You can't return it. It's a gift you keep. I mean, he says, it is granted to you. That's a gift that was not earned or deserved. It is granted to you. And he kind of interrupts himself here and says, first it was granted to you on Christ's behalf to believe, right? That was granted to you. That was a gift. Salvation is a gift. 
The means of your salvation is a gift, but suffering is a gift. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf to suffer. The proof of your salvation. The proof of your salvation is when you go through hard times, you still believe. Those who persevere to the end, Revelation tells us. And this is suffering specific for your faith. This is not suffering that's due to your own doing or your creation because you messed up, because you're whatever, you know, I, I suffer because I made bad decisions. No, this is suffering due to your faith. That has been granted to you. It is a gift. And that gift, the gift of believing, the gift of suffering, those are wrapped up in Jesus. In, in English, we don't quite get the whole Jesus wrapping paper that's on these two verses in our Bible, but it is wrapped in him. That believing and that suffering are given on his behalf. God gave it as a gift because of his son and the work of his son. It, we are believing on his behalf. We are believing so that we are saved, but not just that, on behalf of him to be ambassadors to the world who does not know him. We are believing on his behalf, and we are suffering on his behalf. We suffer because he suffered for us. We suffer, and when we suffer well, we become a testimony for him and a testimony to him. It, it's a progression here that you can't interrupt. If, you, if it was given, if it weren't given, you couldn't believe. But because it is given, you can believe. But because you believe, you will suffer. It's just the way it's going to be. And Paul goes on to say in verse 30, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul is letting us know, and letting the Philippians know, if you're suffering, <laughs> you're on the right team. You're on the same team as Paul. If you're suffering. He says it's the same struggle. It's the same, you are engaged in the, the same struggle. Their suffering is the same kind as Paul's. He says the, the same struggle that you saw I had. They, they have firsthand knowledge of when he, what he went through. He wrote to, I believe, uh, in the first letter to Corinthians, he wrote about his suffering in Philippi and what they did to him. And he says, not only what you saw that I had when I was in Philippi, the numerous times I was in Philippi, but what you now hear that I have. They haven't seen it firsthand. They've heard about it, but they know we're suffering under the same governmental persecution that Paul is. We are right there with him. Same team against the same opponent. And let's be honest, you, you, you run the stat sheets... They're, they're outmatched in size. Paul, his team, our team, we're outmatched in size, speed, coaching, ability. I mean, if you just run the stat sheet, the church loses every time. Mainly because we don't fight. And that's, that's right. Like lambs to the slaughter. We, we go and we, we take the lumps and we take the persecution and then we, as they did in Acts in the early chapters, and we go back praising the Lord. But we got to suffer like Jesus did. We have been counted worthy. We have been given the grace to suffer. So what should I do? Four what should I do's this morning. But I'm going to make it easy on you. If you already wrote down the four points, you've got your four do's. I mean, that really is it this morning. Stand firm in one spirit. Now, we as Baptists often have either a weak or a fearful theology of the Holy Spirit. We're a little scared of the Holy Spirit in the Baptist church. He might, he might do things that we don't do in a Baptist church. Well then we need to get our church straight. No, I'm not talking about jumping pews and, and those sorts. I'm not, but I'm talking about when the Spirit moves. We're scared of the Spirit moving a lot of times. We pray for it, and then we really hope it doesn't happen because he might, he might do things like make us skip pews 
And I don't mean skip over them. I'm talking about sitting odd pews. He might bring a virus, allow a virus to revive his church. He might do some things we don't like, that we're not comfortable with, so we're a little iffy about the Spirit, but we are to stand firm in one spirit regardless, number one. Number two, contend in one accord. If our gospel is weak, watered down, material, political, cultural, sectarian, classist, or racist, that is not a gospel that we will stand up, to, uh, stand up for or contend for, nor is it one we should stand up for nor contend for. We have to have a gospel that is the very truth of God, and it is, that is exclusive in its effect, and it is, to those who profess faith in Christ, which it is, and it should be the one thing, the absolute one thing nothing can dissuade us from standing up for. I'll give in that LSU 2019 football was not the greatest college football team ever, if I have to. You start putting screws through my thumbnails, I'll say, yes, Alabama is great. I'm not going to suffer pain for that. But the gospel that I stand for should be so strong in me and us as a team that there is nothing you could do to me to make me deny my Jesus. That is the gospel that we contend for. Don't be afraid to live as Christ, both believing and suffering, and to die as gain. Whatever you do to me, it's not going to change my now or my eternity. And finally, take suffering as a gift. If you aren't suffering for your faith, it's likely because you aren't obeying the first three. Now, there's a lot of freedom in the U.S., and, and, and so suffering looks a lot different in the U.S. than it does in China, right? In South Sudan, in Vietnam. That does not mean that our faith should be one that everybody goes, oh, that's wonderful, I love that. I mean, if, if, if my sermons don't offend people who aren't believers, then I'm not preaching the Bible. I mean, that's just the, that's just the way it is. If, if, if anybody can sit in a sermon, I'm talking about like anybody, any faith, uh, any, any non-faith, if, if somebody can walk away going, well, that, that, yeah, that made me feel good. And they're Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, nothing, Church of Elvis, whatever it is. Then I'm not preaching the gospel. And, and you aren't either. If everybody's fine with where you stand, it might be the case that you're not standing hard enough, standing firm in one spirit. So maybe you need to, to even experience that spirit looking around we're mostly believers here i would guess i'm not i, I can't see your heart so I, I i don't know and i don't even know who's in the gym this morning so but i know that we are literally if anybody's watching worldwide this morning I mean, anybody can log in and, and and see our see this service from anywhere in the world the gospel is for you even if you are a believer, by the way, the gospel's for you today. This understanding of, of, of God's design and our sinfulness, the, the, the brokenness of the world, the gospel that can only be, that is the only remedy for that. That's, that's the message. That's the gospel we contend for. The, this, Jaden, go ahead and flip forward to the, the gospel. There you go. God's design. That's, that's it, right? We begin there. We begin with, with the sinfulness of our human nature. We, 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 we end up in a broken world, and then we get to the gospel. That is the only thing that can save people. The, the only thing worth contending for. Only thing. And we want people to know that if they confess, repent, believe, repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they can be saved. It's all you have to do. That's, that's the only step you have to take is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Understand your need and trust Jesus with it.
and then you begin to recover and pursue the gospel, uh, rather God's design. You begin to pursue that relationship that God began, and we messed up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your presence. We thank you that you're, for your presence in our persecution, for what you are doing in our lives. We, we pray that we would stand firm in one spirit, that we would contend for the faith as a team, that we would not be afraid of those who would come against us, and we would count suffering as joy, as grace, and not be scared of it. Accept that gift from you. Lord, I pray for those who don't understand this whole concept of faith and grace and all that. Lord, we ask that you would move on their hearts and that they would respond in faith to Jesus Christ this morning. The gospel we contend for, an exclusive gospel. Not everybody's going to be saved, but a gospel that's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. Anyone who believes can be saved. Lord, the one who's listening that thinks there's just no way, let him or her know there is only one way, and it is the way, and, 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 and it, it's for them too. God, we thank you again for letting us come together like this. And we ask that you would move in this place this morning and on the hearts that are watching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our invitation is different now, time of response. If you would like to pray, we're asking that you just pray where you are. Don't come to the prayer rails. There won't be anybody to receive you down here. But if you would like prayer later, after the service, then we're going to ask that you just grab one of us, Amy, Tom, whoever you happen to see walking around. We'd love to pray for you, six feet apart. We'll go into one of these rooms in the back so it can be private, uh, but we don't have to be up close. We're, gonna just, we're just being careful uh, as much as we can. But we're still going to worship. We're still going to have this time of response to let the Lord speak to us. So you can stand, you can sit, whatever you want to do as we sing this morning.